It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Steve Ducey. I'm Dana Perino. I'm Tyrus. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, August 9th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Can you survive your Republican primary if you voted to impeach the former president? The GOP is finding out one race at a time. Sometimes our short-term incentives and what is good and, and makes sense you know, today can very much be to your detriment in the long term. And I think that's what they risk seeing play out here. I'm Lisa Brady. We go inside a silent war along the U.S.-Mexico border. The cartels, Lisa, have never had this much control. They are operating with uh, assembly line efficiency, both moving humans, their hottest commodity, and drugs and contraband. And I'm Kevin Walling. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Ten Republican members of Congress voted to impeach then-President Trump after January 6th, and their primaries became closely watched, or are being closely watched, as Trump endorsed challengers in most of their races. In South Carolina, Tom Rice lost to State Representative Russell Fry earlier in the cycle, and before his primary, he told NBC... Donald Trump's policies, I believe, lifted American families. I think he was a consequential president. But if uh, he attacks the Constitution, if he's wrong, I'm going to I'm going to go vote against it. I'm going to fight that. Four others opted to announce retirement rather than run again. Ohio Congressman Anthony Gonzalez, Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger, John Katko of New York and Michigan's Fred Upton. As for the rest, Dan Newhouse in Washington state's fourth district survived his primary. The votes were still being counted as of Monday in Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler's third district. A Democratic candidate won the primary, but the number two spot is between Herrera Butler and the Trump-backed Joe Kent. And while polling does not look good for her, Congresswoman Liz Cheney in Wyoming will find out next week if she survives. California Congressman David Valadeo advanced in his primary without facing an endorsed challenger, and he will face a Democratic state representative in a blue district. Finally, we know of one more result now. The congressman in Michigan's third district lost his primary after serving just one term to John Gibbs, who served in the Department of Housing and Urban Development under the former president. The Gibbs-Trump agenda is too conservative for West Michigan. DCCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on ads like that one to highlight Gibbs, as they've done in some other races, hoping to face someone they perceive as easier to beat in the fall. You know, I think we all always knew it was going to be close. Uh, we were definitely swimming upstream. Michigan's third district congressman, Peter Meyer. Uh, it's worth noting that in addition to being a freshman member uh, and you know casting some votes of conscience that were not always as well received as one might hope, uh, that the district was 50 percent the one I was elected into in 2020 and 50 percent was new territory. So new voters who had not mm-hmm. been communicating with our office, who had not been receiving some of our official correspondence. So, you know, we knew we were the underdogs um, kind of from the get go. Uh, and we hoped to be able to make it over the line, but fell just about three points short. Yeah. Was your sense that you maybe lost this primary because of those votes to impeach after January 6th and to authorize the congressional committee or redistricting impacted you? Or it it sounds like in your mind, it was really all of the above. I I think all of the above is a fair assessment. Um, My defeat is mine and and mine alone. You know, I I lost this race and we weren't able to get over the 50 percent mark, but uh, there were clearly 
uh, a number of other factors. And, and this is where I'm always a little bit uncomfortable about extrapolating broad trends. You know, every race, every candidate, every challenger, every district is going to be different. Um, but I think what was unique in this one is the confluence of both some on the on the right uh, angling to oust me and, and locking arms with some on the left as well with the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee yep. dropping, you know, a half million dollar ad buy and spending more in one week to promote my challenger than uh, my challenger had raised and spent over the entire course of his campaign. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. The the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and we've known that other Democratic groups and those linked with Democratic groups have been spending money on a myriad of, of races. And you were among the targets, uh, the DCCC spending money to highlight your challenger, John Gibbs. Uh, it sounds like in hopes that he would win the primary, making it in their mind an easier seat to win. Were you surprised that you were, I guess, such a, a high value target? You know, I wasn't surprised. We had seen a House Majority PAC, which is the super PAC that is directed by Nancy Pelosi. Uh, we had seen them running contrast ads to try to unseat David Valadeo out in California. Right. He also voted to impeach. And his was a district that Biden won by double digits in 2020. In comparison, I mentioned the redistricting. Our district went from a district that Trump won by three points in 2020 to one that Biden would have won by close to nine points. Yeah. Uh, so it became a much more Democratic leading seat. And again, you know, a prime opportunity to choose the general election opponent and somebody who had, you know, fewer ties to the district had maybe more political baggage uh, and was less well situated to carry some of those crossover moderate and independent voters going into November. We know you voted to impeach after January 6th. You voted for the January 6th committee. Democrats have been very critical of Republicans who did not vote to impeach and who did not vote for a congressional committee. You've also voted for some other bipartisan legislation, the CHIPS Act, the PACT Act. Mm -hmm. We'll talk more about that. When it comes down to it, then, do Democrats not care about your morals and values and the notion that you are a Republican they can talk to and they just see you and your seat as either a W or an L for them. Well, and I think that's part of the delicious irony of it all. Um, and to be clear, I, I voted for the bipartisan commission and not the select right. committee. But okay. but I had, you know, you don't necessarily expect nor want the pat on the back. But if you're being patted on the back and knifed from the front, you know, it's a bit of a mixed message uh, that's being sent. <laughs> and with many of my democratic colleagues you know preaching that theirs is the party of democracy that we are faced with an existential threat to our our republic you know coming from the far right it is just bewilderingly hypocritical in those same moments um, you know, not to be looking for marginal partisan advantage, but if they are saying that this is a moment that should rise above politics and above, you know, our partisan, you know, day to day lives, uh, then just to see them stoop to those same, you know, business as usual politics, you know, again, it, it's beyond hypocritical. And I very much enjoyed many of uh, my Democratic colleagues who sit on the January 6th Select Committee, uh, having the microphone put in their face and asked, do you support your your dues, the assessments that they pay to the DCCC? Again, this is not an outside super PAC. This is an entity that is funded by right. their campaign dollars that they are investing for their own defense. You know, do you support your your dollars going to boost exactly the thing you say you fear? And kudos to some of my colleagues who said that they didn't support it and criticized the approach. And uh, I guess some shame on those who said, well, you know, he's a great guy, but. <laughs> hmm. 
<laughs> Does the I mean, you you just highlighted redistricting in your area and the Biden versus uh, Trump point uh, scheme in 2020? Does the Democrat win this seat now? Hillary Shulton, former DOJ attorney, is the Democratic candidate. Does she, if you were to pull out the crystal ball, does she take over this district? I, I certainly think she's favored uh, at this point. Um, now, I, I made this point in an essay I wrote last week that less electable does not mean unelectable. And I think that's one of the things that some of my Democratic colleagues have been grappling with is the possibility for this strategy to backfire and to backfire spectacularly. You know, we've seen Democrats do similar things in, in Maryland and in Pennsylvania. And, and both of those, those were races that I think the Republican nominee who ended up winning still had you know, the momentum on their side. It was not those were not races decided by single digits, um, as opposed to this race where, you know, a, a half million dollars at the very end when it's decided by a few thousand votes, you know, could very well have made that difference. And if it's only a, a marginally increased shot at reducing the Democrats losses by one or two seats, um, you know, what is that ultimate trade off in the end? You know, sometimes our short term incentives and what is good and, and makes sense, you know, today can very much be to your detriment in the long term. And I think that's what they risk seeing play out here. This is kind of a hypothetical, but let's say some of the candidates who align themselves, you know, more with the former president, let's say they lose to Democrats in the fall, even in this landscape with inflation and the president's poll numbers. What happens then? Do Republicans step back and reconfigure or or is it just, you know, sorry, we think there are too many rhinos and we're just going to stick with this plan, even if it means losses in the general? I think it has a lot less to do with support for the former president than just, you know, what, what do you have to offer? You know, what is your what is the quality of the candidate that's in the race? Mm. You know, I think we've seen in some races the former president has backed you know terrific candidates who will probably go on to to win the general and be very successful in office. And in other cases, it tends to look like a race to the bottom. And I think in the mm. cases where it's the race to the bottom, you know, that strategy can backfire as well. But I've become a very firm believer from my one you know term in office. Uh, that the extremes on both sides of the aisle don't actually want to govern. You know, they, they want control over their half, but they don't necessarily want to be in the position of making the hard decisions of having to worry about debt ceiling and fiscal policy. You know, they're much more comfortable throwing bombs and, and getting, you know, uh, trending social media posts than with mm -hmm. actually changing policy and taking on the burden of governance. Let's talk about that burden of governance and what you've done. You've had quite a term. Uh, we reached out to you after you went to Afghanistan nearly a year ago after we pulled out. You took those critical votes after January 6th. You voted for the CHIPS Act, the PACT Act. I know you're especially, I guess, excited about the PACT Act to lessen mm -hmm. the, the hurdles and obstacles for veterans uh, to get treatment after being exposed to toxic burn pits. What are you, I guess, what, what, what is your congressional legacy and what do you think about what you've done? I'm very proud of our congressional legacy. I think despite being a freshman and despite being in the minority, uh, we're on track to set a record for the most number of bills signed into law. Our focus from the beginning was, you know, we are only given a set amount of time by the voters. We don't want to take that for granted. We want to take advantage of it. We want to leave as lasting an impact as possible. And you know, oftentimes that means not getting everything you want. It means having to to take the 80% today and work on the 20% tomorrow. But mm. in my view, 
you know, every member of Congress, the job should be to try to move the ball forward, to try to make a positive impact, to not just throw up your arms in the face of challenges, but to try to get something done and, and do the best with what you can. And so I'm proud of our team for having been able to get that those essential pieces written into law. We have a couple of other bills that were in the National Defense Authorization Act that passed out of the House that should, and we hope will be included in the version the Senate sends back to us. Um, but at the end of the day, to me, that's what members of Congress are there to do. They're there to either prevent bad pieces of legislation from getting put forward, which, my God, we've tried. Um, <laughs> you know, the budget reconciliation process has certainly not made that easy, uh, but also to, to put good things forward and try to improve the status quo for all Americans. Congressman, finally, what do you do now? <laughs> you're still you're, you're young. You just made a big political splash. I know you just had one term, but you did a lot. You have a resume prior to being in Congress. What do you want to put your efforts toward, you know, after after November or rather after January? Yeah, uh, you know, I definitely will stay politically engaged. I think it's important to do so. I think if if good folks step out of politics and say, you know, I, I'm tired of this, then that vacuum is probably going to be filled by somebody who doesn't share your values. And, mm. and at the end of the day, you know, I, I think we need a government that is not just getting captured between two parties, but that doubles down on the essence of governance. You know, I'm a big believer in having a limited but effective government, right? Limited in terms of having a narrow scope and saying if the federal government should only do what the federal government alone could do. Um, but what the federal government chooses to do, it has to be good at it. I mean, look at the FDA baby formula shortage, right? Mm. Look at all of these other issues that are are not left or right. I mean, they're, they're just competence versus incompetence. And we should expect nothing but competence from our federal government and be restless in getting to the point where our government is actually fulfilling its obligations to the American people. Congressman Peter Meyer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Kevin Walling with your Fox News commentary coming up. Illegal immigration isn't new, and issues like human trafficking and drug smuggling have been around for a long time, too. But the sheer volume along the southern border now is different, and so is the battle on the front lines. The troopers are DPS. The chopper is DPS. There's no border patrol out here. Fox News correspondent Griff Jenkins recently embedded with troopers from the Texas Department of Public Safety, including Lieutenant Chris Olivares, sometimes catching groups of illegal immigrants on remote Texas ranches as part of the Texas governor's effort to boost border security, known as Operation Lone Star. You guys didn't do this kind of work four or five years ago. Right. It's all because of the resources and state assets that Governor Abbott has deployed to the border because of the situation right now. Jenkins also travels into Mexico, where thousands of Central Americans are camped out, waiting to try and cross into the U.S., the border, which I've been covering for 15 years or more, has never seen this kind of unprecedented traffic. He has a new Fox Nation special, Broken Border Crisis. 
It is absolutely overwhelming agents. That is why their morale is very low. And that is why the officials here in the Rio Grande Valley and all along the 7,000 mile southern border will tell you they believe that their leaders, Secretary Mayorkas, is not doing enough to, quote, secure that border. In just the top three sectors in Texas alone, which includes the Rio Grande Valley, the RGV, the busiest one, they've had more than a million migrants this fiscal year with the numbers growing three more months to go. And that is why when President Biden took over and undid many of the previous administration's policies, which has led directly to the surge we're seeing, not an opinion, just pure fact based on what we've seen in the last 17 plus months, you've got Texas Governor Greg Abbott standing up this Operation Lone Star, which they say, according to their stats, have apprehended some 300,000 plus uh, migrants themselves. That's separate from CBP and arrested over 17,000 criminal migrants in those months. And when they give numbers, Customs and Border Protection, when they give numbers like over a million migrants, they're talking about migrants apprehended. So that doesn't include, you know, the ones trying to cross illegally who got away. Is that correct? Such a great question, because under previous administrations, they called when a migrant from anywhere would cross illegally and encounter, which is what they call it now, the Border Patrol. They're actually apprehended because they're held, processed, and in some cases released with a notice to appear before a uh, immigration judge, in, assuming they're going to claim asylum, or they're deported back across the border to Mexico or to their home countries. Now, this administration has changed. They don't like the term illegal alien and they don't like the term apprehended. They call it encounters. So now we say, or CBP reports, I should say, that they have encountered more than a million. And of course, across the entire southern border, we know that number is north of 1.7 million, which eclipsed the previous fiscal year. And it is the highest it's ever been. The job along the southern border for these agents isn't just stopping illegal immigrants. It's stopping terrorists, drugs, weapons um, and smuggling in general seems like something that continues to involve with drugs. For example, aromatic candles have been found filled with fentanyl. They found liquid meth in fuel tanks on a truck. But then we have the issue of human trafficking, um, sometimes with tragic consequences. The recent deaths of more than 50 people in that abandoned tractor trailer in Texas. How are vehicles at the border inspected? Are they using agents, dogs, technology, and who is supposed to be inspecting vehicles? You know, Lisa, I was down in Eagle Pass, Texas, the week that that tragedy happened. And what has happened as a result since is that Texas Governor Abbott, under the Operation Lone Star I just mentioned, he's adding secondary inspection stations. Because what we know in the case of that one specific truck, it had gone through a Border Patrol CBP Laredo checkpoint, but yet 
yet was not detected, and many believe that was the result of simply being short on manpower. And so the Texas governor believes that they need additional checkpoints to try and inspect trucks for exactly that sort of situation. But you talk about why is this happening? The cartels, Lisa, have never had this much control. They are operating with uh, assembly line efficiency, both moving humans, their hottest commodity, and drugs and contraband, and of course, the deadly drug fentanyl that we're seizing, seeing such a surge in deaths, unfortunately, across our country as a result of that drug coming across, particularly many of them uh, masked as fake pills that the teenagers are buying online. It's an unbelievable problem right now, and I believe, personally, just an observation, it's not getting enough attention, and so too does the government. I sat recently in an off-the-record meeting with the DEA because they've seen our reporting of Fox News and said we want to help because we want the message out there about the cartels moving the deadly drug fentanyl into our country. In the case of the RGV sector, so many are coming in in El Paso in the Del Rio sector as well. The agents get preoccupied trying to process migrants. It's leaving these gaps where they're putting people through in drugs through that they don't want apprehended. I know you spoke with a smuggler who explained, you know, not only how much they charge to give people a ride in a tractor trailer, for example, instead of trying to, say, cross the Rio Grande River, but also, you know, tried to say, hey, look, we're giving them a safer option to get into the country, um, which, of course, as we saw recently with the abandoned tractor trailer yeah. and the dead migrants, that isn't always the case. But what else did this smuggler have to say? I mean, did they just defend? It sounds like they're defending it as, oh, we're, we're actually doing a service for them. Well, isn't it something? I mean, the cartel. So, you know, and by the way, you may have just heard a helicopter flying overhead. That's the border officials looking for migrants who don't want to be apprehended. They want to avoid detection and they're called runners. And we've got more than 500 known gotaways, meaning they saw them from the helicopter. They saw them on cameras, but they were not able to bring them into custody. But, you know, I did go into Reynosa, Mexico, just across from McAllen. Texas and the RGV where I am now and spoke to a Gulf cartel smuggler. The interview took upwards of nine months to get and ultimately they agreed to talk to me because they believe that while they are making billions of dollars by had this, you know, process of smuggling them in this case all the way from Central America through Southern Mexico to our southern border, they believe that the migrants are safer in the cartel hands and in some cases their argument is accurate but yet at the same time the brutal reality is as we've seen the cartels don't care about the migrants safety and what happens to them and in many cases they extort them once they've crossed into the u.s they've got their number they know their family members that are on this side of the border and they make them pay more and the smuggler telling me that any migrant coming across has to pay anywhere from five to ten thousand just to make it across Across the border, sometimes they're charged again, as I mentioned. But the ones that want to get through and not uh, encounter or be engaged with the Border Patrol officials, they're paying upwards of twenty, thirty thousand dollars. I asked the smuggler about exactly what was the the most valuable commodity, and he didn't answer directly, comparing humans to drugs. But he essentially did indicate that right now the hottest thing is moving humans. 
I mean, it ends up being a really dangerous gamble essentially for these immigrants, whether they're trying to cross on foot, whether they're trying to cross with a smuggler. And the bottom line is that, you know, at the border, it sounds like they they don't have the manpower or maybe even the time to, for instance, inspect every single vehicle that's coming across unless there's something suspicious about it. And so maybe vehicles are sometimes singled out and inspected. The Texas governor's taken a lot of heat for using more state resources to do things that he says, you know, the federal government's failing to do. What do the Texas public safety officers say who are dealing with this day in and day out? When you're talking about the migrants coming and making and willing to take this dangerous trek, you have to understand why that is. And the reason why they're making the journey and the border officials call this the pull factor for them to leave their homes with nothing many of them leaving obviously poverty and danger and gangs in their home countries but they're coming because they see the success rate of those that went before them they're seeing that they are getting through they see on social media that others that went to go get to the u.s and get jobs and be able to send money back is successful you know i've learned over the many years lisa the border patrol officials will tell you that the way to secure a border has a three-pronged system infrastructure, manpower, and technology. They need the wall because the wall works. Obviously, this administration stopped construction, although they started in just a tiny part of Yuma, Arizona, to go back to putting walls in places. They need manpower, which they don't have. You're seeing $10,000 incentives for anyone to join the Border Patrol because morale is very low, and they need more bodies, more men and women in green, as they say. And then the technology, and the technology seems to continue to exist, that is those cameras all over the border and of course the drones in the helicopter to try and spot them when they come. We hear a lot about the frustration of both federal and state officers at the border. What do they say is needed to help make the border more secure? Is it more of the technology? You mentioned the wall. I mean, do, do they call for more vehicle inspections, for instance? Every Border Patrol official I've spoken to in the last year plus say that what they want is to reinstate some of the previous administration's policy like remain in Mexico. However, we know from the recent Supreme Court ruling, this administration, the Biden administration has been given the green light to end that policy. What that does is that makes any migrant that wants to claim asylum wait in Mexico while their claim plays out. They want the wall to be built in strategic areas that deters migrants flowing into easy uh, areas where they can evade detection. So they want some policies reinstated. They want wall and they definitely want more manpower. They need that because when a, a border official is dealing with one group of migrants, that means he can't go to another area, but yet the technology may be signaling that more migrants are coming across, but he can't go anywhere because he's got to process them and put them on buses. If you had more agents, you wouldn't have that problem. Fox News correspondent Griff Jenkins. Broken Border Crisis is your special streaming on Fox Nation. Thank you so much for your time, Griff. Stay safe. Lisa, thanks. It was great to be with you.
Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Kevin Walling. What's on your mind? I'm a Democrat, and here are three reasons why we'll hold the Senate in 2022. One of President Joe Biden's favorite sayings from the campaign trail is, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And it seems, less than 100 days out from the 2022 midterm elections, voters are doing just that. The oft-repeated mantra that candidates matter is proving true, as Republicans are consistently underperforming in polls and in nominating extreme candidates far outside the mainstream. In an evenly divided U.S. Senate, every candidate and battleground state matters. Here's a look at three critical factors working against Republican hopes for returning to power in the upper chamber this fall. Money talks. Second quarter fundraising numbers released just last month paint a very different picture between rival camps, with Democrats posting blockbuster hauls while GOP candidates have mostly flopped. Arizona, Georgia, and New Hampshire are must-win states for Team Red's chances of flipping the Senate, but the incumbent Democrats wiped the floor with their Republican challengers. In New Hampshire, incumbent Democrat Senator Maggie Hassan raised just over $5 million in quarter two, compared to just 538000 for challenger Chuck Morse, the state Senate president. In the Peach State, Trump-backed Herschel Walker, who easily bested his GOP rivals in May, posted a respectable $6.2 million, but Senator Raphael Warnock raised nearly three times as much bringing in $17.2 million during the same period. Populist Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan also trounced his opponent, J.D. Vance, in Ohio last quarter, raking in $9.1 million to just over two point three million for the author-turned-Senate hopeful. Fractured base. In 2022, the Republican primary elections were cruel, filled with political and personal attacks, and a bitter divide among candidates. Brutal primary campaigns in Ohio and Pennsylvania pitting Trump-backed candidates against more establishment-supported challengers have left victors struggling to pick up the pieces ahead of November. In Pennsylvania, recent polling has Oz down double digits against his Democratic rival Fetterman, due in large part to an inability to unite Republicans across the Commonwealth. In Arizona, venture capitalist Blake Masters won the GOP nod with just 39 percent of the vote in a hard-fought contentious primary. In Missouri, current Attorney General Eric Schmidt fared better in the primary, netting just over 45% of the vote in an even more heated race against former Governor Eric Reitens. In both races, a majority of Republicans supported different candidates and have followed in the wake of others highlighted above with some of the most negative campaigning we've seen in GOP contests. Roe matters. Prognosticators in both parties believe that the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs to overturn decades of precedent on abortion rights might have impacts just on the margins of a handful of key races. This landmine will be tough for Republicans to navigate, not only in close races, but in races where the GOP thinks they have a greater margin of likely victory. Voters, especially women, are angry and are turning out in large numbers to have their voices heard. And Republicans can certainly rebound should their base begin to consolidate around their candidates. If Democratic fundraising starts to dwindle, or if key indicators on the economy do not improve. But I like my party's chances in November. I'm Kevin Walling, Democratic campaign strategist and former Biden campaign surrogate. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.